Okay, this is the living Word of God from Acts chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and that you uh, have provided it to us in a language that we understand. I pray over our church this morning. Um, so many needs that we have. We're, we're so blessed. And yet each one of us uh, in the quad of our own heart has issues. <clears throat> whether they be financial or relational, uh, pain, um, some wondering about work, career, whatever it may be, Father, we, we all have needs. And so we, we come to you this morning with those needs. And I pray that as John uh, teaches from this section of Scripture, that um, our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say to us, that you'd affirm us, and that you'd send us to be your servants. That's the cry of our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Bob. For as long as I can remember, I've loved words. 
When I was in elementary school, I went to Jinx West Elementary School. I uh, remember Shirley English. Who remembers Shirley English? Is that still a thing? I love, Jeff, you know Shirley English. I loved it. All the little rhymes and the songs so that you could learn the parts of a sentence and preposition. That was my jam as a second grader. I loved it. Also, how great was it that Todd cried earlier? That was awesome. Um, I, I loved words. My parents tell me that I was a pretty chatty kid. We, uh, we would go to see my grandma in Iowa, and mama would tell stories about I'd be in the back seat, like just talking and talking and talking and talking, and then I'd fall asleep, and I'd wake up, and I'd just wake up talking and talking again. I remember in the first grade, Mrs. Lockhart called me a motor mouth, and she put me at a table by myself. I don't know if that helped, but I do remember that happening. Um, I loved words, loved stories. My, my folks homeschooled me in the fifth grade because my mom thought that she could salvage my handwriting, which she, it did not work, it did not take. I still have horrible handwriting, but we, uh, I read 150, 200 chapter books that year, really loved books and, and stories, and I really loved all the little details that go unexplained, so that just lets your imagination wander. My 12th grade uh, year at Metro, I had an English teacher, Kathy Pyle, who was very intense. Those of you who are snickering know that Mrs. Pyle was intense. Her husband, Matt Pyle, the Pyle driver, cross-country coach, strong mustache. Uh, but Mrs. Pyle was, was awesome. And we read The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. It's really ambiguous and kind of freaky. I loved the, just the, the mystery in the book. You get to let your mind wander. They don't explain everything. And that's carried on as I've, as I've grown in, you know, to adulthood. I like watching movies. Um, these are not official endorsements, so do not uh, come back to me and, and complain about anything. But I love Wes Anderson movies. Wes Anderson is really, you know, kind of dorky and has great attention to detail in his storytelling. Christopher Guest is another one. He, he's the one who did Spinal Tap forever ago. He's done a ton of movies. And they're so funny, but, but the, both of those directors have great attention to detail. And so what's going on in the foreground of the story is amusing and entertaining. But when I watch these movies, and I don't watch new movies, I just watch the same ones again and again and again, I'll like watch what's happening like just off camera or just out of focus. Not in the foreground, but what's happening in the background. And there you really see the director's attention to detail. You see the Easter eggs that are hidden, the, the things that are on the bookshelf or the desk or the facial expressions of, of, of characters in the story who are just outside of the main focus in the background. Now, in, in the text that Bob just read, we've got some intense action in the foreground at the front. This is a pretty powerful story. Um, we, we see in the text a bit of a time stamp so that we know where we are. It said that this story happened at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, this is Passover. And so we have reason to believe it's been a year since the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's been a year, and a lot has happened in a year. The church has taken off and grown by thousands and thousands and Herod, who was the Jewish kind of sub-king under the authority of Caesar, acknowledged the power of the symbol of this anniversary and wanted to send a message. And so he ordered that James, the brother of John, a leader in the church, be beheaded. But then he was going to go after really like his, like his trophy, which was to capture Peter, the head of the church. He arrests Peter and spares no expense you know, bringing him uh, to, to trial. He's going to bring him to trial. 
This Herod name may sound familiar to you. This is not the same Herod that was around at the time uh, that Jesus was a baby. Uh, Herod the Great was the first of the Herods, made a sub-king over Palestine. He was a deeply insecure guy. When the wise men came searching for Jesus, they said, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? And Herod then went to search out and to kill every boy two years and younger. Herod was deeply insecure about losing his power. His son was Herod Antipas, who, who had conspired with Pilate to kill Jesus. And Herod, a loyal servant of Rome who had betrayed his people, said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. He deeply wanted to hold on to his power. And now his son, Herod Agrippa I, wanted to end once and for all this movement that claimed that Jesus was the king of the world. Jesus, and not Herod and not Caesar, but Jesus was the king of the world. And that really was the hallmark of the early Christian movement, as they appeared seditious to those who were in power. They claimed that Jesus was not only king of the Jews, as Herod was afraid of, but the Christians believed that Jesus was the king of the world. And so they wanted to send a strong message. So Herod arrests Peter. He guards him with four squads of four soldiers each, 16 soldiers, Uh, were sent to arrest him. They bring him to prison where he's stripped. He's put behind an iron door. He's shackled to two other guards. And there are three levels of sentries that stand between Peter and freedom. But there was something that was in Peter's favor. This was verse 5 that Bob read, Acts 12, 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And the prayer of the church was an act of protest against the tyranny of Herod. Herod represents all of the forces of the world that are allied against the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. With the church, by praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, the church was pledging their allegiance to King Jesus, and they were also announcing their rebellion and a revolution against all other would-be kings and pretenders to the throne and rivals and idols. And the text makes extremely clear Peter's challenges, what he has up against him. It's really clear. The two guards, the chain, stripped naked, iron door, three levels of guards between him and freedom. But there was a praying church. And had we read the entirety of the chapter, we would see that by the end of the chapter, Peter was free and Herod was dead. And it's like God was giving a shot across the bow to the rulers and the kings of this earth to note who's actually in charge. The kings of the earth and all of those who are given positions of authority even today are temporary stewards, but Jesus is the forever king. And Jesus will be proven to be the forever king, which reminds all of us who have power of any kind. We're going to talk about power in the month of October. That power is something to be stewarded with fear and trembling. Power is something to be stewarded with humility, whether you are a pastor or a principal or a parent or a president. Power is something to be stewarded with humility and with fear and trembling. And so you heard the rest of the story. God delivers Peter. Peter ends up in the street and he thinks, surely this is a dream. What on earth is going on? And he realizes, no, this is not a dream. And so he goes to where the church was meeting, at the home of this woman named Mary. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's just some Mary who happens to be John's mom, who happens to be just some John. These are normal names. He goes to the house. They let him in and they're astonished what God has done. 
And it's kind of surprising after all God has done among them, they were surprised that He answered their prayer, which is relatable. I feel better about myself, that even them who'd seen amazing things struggled with their faith. They were astonished by what God had done, and then they snuck Peter away in the middle of the night so that when uh, Herod and his people woke up the next morning, they wouldn't catch him again and put him back in prison. Now, this is a powerful story. It's an intense story. It's a story about kingship and power and prayer. And it's a story about angels and the future of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit. But that's all going on in the foreground. If we're to look past the principal action and, and see some, some, some of what's going on in the background, there's a really cool, tiny story that kind of captures uh, my attention. And it's that detail. Did you even notice it about a servant girl named Rhoda? Rhoda gets a shout-out in this story. Rhoda means Rose. My daughter's Libby Rose. This is sweet little Rosie, the servant girl. I love it. Um, who's, who's really good at uh, being fast with your phone? Someone throw your hand up, please. Um, okay, Noel, you can go to BibleGateway.com. Who can beat her, okay? Go to BibleGateway.com, and I want you to search Rhoda. Rhoda. And all of you who are like, 35 and older. Is anyone else thinking of Rhoda Morgenstern from the Mary, Mary Tyler Moore? Okay. I don't think it's the same one. R-H-O-D-A. Okay. Okay. Show off. Okay. Ben, uh, tell us what you found. Not much. Okay. Where, where's Rhoda? She's in that, in that verse, Acts 12, 13. And where else? Nowhere. Nowhere else. This is the only mention of Rhoda in the entire Bible, okay? Why on earth did they include this detail? Rhoda is never mentioned. It's not like they were, like, setting it up as if she's going to be a recurring character on the show. We don't see Rhoda, you know, like, traipsing around with Paul and Barnabas or anything like that. This is like Rhoda's 15 minutes in the Bible. Why on earth did Rhoda get mentioned? Sweet little Rosie the servant girl. Why on earth did she get a shout out? You think the story could have been told just as easy by excluding her. Uh, Peter was let out of prison by the angel. He goes to where the church is, knocks on the door. They let him in. Uh, they're astonished and praise God, and then they send him on their way. Could have easily told the story without mentioning Rhoda by name, or without mentioning Mary, who was John's mom, who had the house, who had a servant named Rosie. Why on earth is this story included? It's funny. And it's a really cute story, too. It's like, like she, he's, she recognizes his voice. She knows him. He goes to the door, forgets to get it, goes back to the people. They said, you forgot to get him. They go back, let him in. It's really cute. It's like a sitcom -y kind of thing. Why on earth is this story included? You think about the first century. Uh, Rhoda was a servant, a person of uh, not of, of a ton of significance culturally. She was a woman. And you think about what that meant in that culture. And also, for the sake of this story, she's a fairly inconsequential character. So why is she mentioned? Two reasons. First reason that I think Rhoda gets mentioned is that individuals matter to God and to God's story. Individuals matter to God and to God's story. You read the Bible, and God's story is a long, long list of names of individuals that God interacted with and through whom God did great work. There's something like 3,200, 3,300 unique names of, of people, regular people in the Bible. Rhoda is one of those, 3,200, 3,300. 
God didn't work in general or in the abstract. God worked in the particular, in the local, in towns, in cities, in countries, in families, among people who had names and moms and dads and stories. God wasn't an abstract idea. God worked in the very local and the very messy with individuals. And so Rhoda, one of these individuals, was noticed. And in this story, Rhoda was named. And in naming her, it dignified her. She became a person of significance. Rhoda, sweet Rosie, the servant girl, was named in the same book that has Peter and Paul and Philip and Stephen and the headliners. Rhoda is listed like in the Hall of Fame in the Bible, and this was her 15 minutes. This is all she did. You're not going to see her name elsewhere in the Bible. She was named and included and dignified. And she was the first Christian woman to speak in the book of Acts. Sweet Rosie, the servant girl, was the first Christian woman to speak in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is part two of a bigger story. Part one is the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke pays careful attention to how Jesus Jesus notices individuals. He doesn't just speak to the crowds, although he did preach to the masses, to the hundreds and the thousands. Jesus noticed individuals, and Luke captures this beautifully. Individual interactions with with people, with names and faces and stories and families. He he, He picks out the individual, but particular to Luke and particular to the ministry of Jesus, Jesus didn't just go after the headliners. And Luke pays careful attention to how Jesus goes after the poor and the weak and the outcast and the stranger. That's because in God's kingdom, uh, the humble are honored, and those who are honored in this life are humbled and brought to their knees. And so the inclusion of Rhoda's story, as cute as it is, and the fact that she was named in the story, it was Rhoda, makes a kingdom statement, makes a, a statement about how the kingdom of God works and who matters in God's kingdom. And the kind of people who matter in God's kingdom are people like Rhoda, people who by, by all appearances are very ordinary and whose name you don't even really catch when you tell the story the first time. It's a significant statement about who matters in God's kingdom. Who matters in God's kingdom? You matter in God's kingdom. Rhodas, regular people, matter in God's kingdom. God made you. God loves you. Particular to you. God made you. God loves you. God knows your history. He knows your wounds. He knows your joys. He knows your temperament. He knows your family. He, more than even yourself, knows what you've been through and knows what your deal is. God gets you. It reminds me of the story in the Old Testament of Hagar. Do you remember the story of Hagar? God had called this guy Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you and bless your family, and through your family, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Well, the trick was that Abram's wife, Sarah, was, was uh, struggling with infertility. She wasn't getting pregnant. She's getting older, too. And so Sarah took matters into her own hands. She took her, her maidservant, Hagar, and said, hey, sleep with my husband. It's going to be through you that, that God fulfills his promises. And so Hagar gets pregnant. She has Ishmael. Later, Sarah gets pregnant with Isaac. And when she has Isaac, she kicks out Hagar and Ishmael. And then you've got a single mother on the run who's out in the wilderness. And God appears to her and says, I'm going to bless your kid too. And, and Hagar names God. You're the God who sees me. You're the God who notices me. 
And here in Holy Scripture, we, we see that it's still the God who notices regular people like Hagar and like Rhoda. God sees you, your struggles and your fears and your longings and your joy and your questions, and He's not threatened by the worst of what He's seen in you. God gets it. He understands and He cares. Now, make no mistake, God is not a divine butler. God is not a divine therapist who's just here to listen to all of your problems and to cater to all of your whims and wishes just at your beck and call as if the world revolves around you or around me. God is the king. Jesus is the king. And this is his story. But in his kingdom and in his story, while he's the king, he's the kind of king that notices people like you and me and who cares. He notices you. The first reason why I think Rhoda is included is, is individuals matter to God. But the second reason I think Rhoda gets mentioned here is because it teaches us something important about the nature of the church. It teaches us something important about the nature of the church. So the second half of this story, after Peter busts out of prison, takes place in the home of this woman named Mary. Mary is a very ordinary name. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not Mary Magdalene, as far as we can tell. It's not John as one of the apostles. These are, these are regular people who are members of the church, and they happen to have a servant whose name was Rhoda. The church is all about names and faces. And if your experience of church, whether it's a cornerstone or if it's been perhaps going to other churches, if your experience of church is chiefly an evaluation of the performance of musicians or a speaker in a one-hour service once a week and not a list of names of people whose lives are deeply interwoven with yours and together you're spurring each other on in the pursuit of Jesus, then you are missing out. If your experience of church is limited to all of us sitting in rows, looking forward, watching one or a couple people talk or sing or make music, whatever it is, then we are doing it wrong. Church is meant to be so much more. Unfortunately, the American church too often has hijacked and subverted the, the nature and the identity of the church. It turned the church into a brand or into a platform on which you launch your celebrity leader or your celebrity pastor. But the church is not about the name or the face of the pastor or the brand of the church. The church is about the names and the faces of the people of God, individuals through whom and among whom God is doing this great work of renewal and restoration and transformation in all kinds of very ordinary and extraordinary ways. We know Rhoda's story because she was part of the church. She was one of the names and the faces of the people who were following Jesus in the first century, and her name is recorded here, but there were lots of names that weren't recorded. The church is about names and faces. Rhoda's name matters to us because Rhoda's name matters to God, and we are a church of Rhoda's. Paul said this in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, about the nature of the church. He says, just as a body, though one, has many parts... But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. I can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. 
If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It's names and faces. It's people. I, I have a position of privilege to know a lot of you. I love what God is doing in this community. I love it. Colin, I love what God has been doing in you this year. Breaks my heart in the best kind of way. I love it. Cameron, I love what God's doing in you. I love hearing the, your story. It's amazing. Um, there are lots of stories in this room. Spencer and Libby, I love it. Uh, God is, is, is at work in your lives. Mike, Daniel, it's, it's profound, the things that God is doing in this community. Aaron, love that you guys are here. Um, it's names and faces. It often does not feel worthy of being written down in Scripture, but it's God's doing the kind of work that's being written in our story as the church today, as, as the Holy Spirit is continuing to work and to move. It's names and faces. It's regular people. Rhoda's mentioned because we're Rhoda, and we've got a part to play in the story. We're noticed, and we're named, and we're dignified. The vision of this church is not to have, like, a million services and churn people out, as if it's the big numbers that count. Uh, the vision is to be a community, whether that's a community of 70 people or 700 people, I don't really care. I do care that we are a community that's being shaped by the story of Jesus together. Gabe and Lauren, I love your story. I love, Gabe, God's doing awesome stuff in your life in the last year. It's really encouraging. We want to be a community shaped by the gospel to join God in the renewal of all things. It's a great, beautiful thing, but it's names and faces. It's regular people. It's most of the time fairly unextraordinary, but this is how God works among regular people like you and like me. When we come to the table, we, we, we remember this all over again. Paul said later in the same letter to the church, said, when you get together at the table, you'll do right if you discern the body of Christ. And he meant two things by that. One was to discern, this is a holy thing. We're telling the story of Jesus. And when the church gathers to, to celebrate communion, Christ is present. Discern the body. He's here with us. Say, so where two or three are gathered, I'm there. Guys, discern it. He's here. But he also meant to discern the body of Christ. The body is in this room. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. And when you come to the table, you don't come by yourself. You come with your siblings. Your sibling in Christ is going to serve you this morning. Seated around are your mothers and your fathers and your brothers and your sisters. Uh, it's a gift to be part of this family. That's why we're, we're putting such emphasis on, on, on trying to get to know each other and doing things like apprentice groups. The programs are, are not the end. The end is to be a community shaped by the gospel, to learn, to see, and to notice one another in the same way that Jesus has seen and noticed each of us. So invitation today is to discern the body of Christ, to, to know and remember how Jesus has seen and noticed you and loved you and named you. He knows everything about you, the worst of it, and he loves you, gave his life to rescue you. He's also won you into a family. That's a good thing. That's a good story. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I, I often feel like praying, you know what we are made of. And I pray that because I know how broken I am and how at times incompetent or sinful or 
unfocused that I can be. And yet it's, you know, we see in Rhoda's story, like you choose, you choose normal people. That's us. Pray for all of us in this room, God, for the people who feel very unlovely and unloved, that you'd remind them you're the God who sees us and knows us. You know our history. You know our needs. You know our places of deepest shame. And you love us and you want to make us new. God, remind them today of your great love. Lord, for those of us who we're walking with you, we trust you. Give us the ministry of noticing others. Give us the eyes to see one another, to, to discern the body of Christ in the lobby and in the parking lot and across the table at, at the coffee shop. Help us to see one another. And may we be the kind of people who see the world that you love through your eyes. As we come to the table and say thanks for all that you're doing, for the gift of your spirit, we can't live without you. Nourish us by the person of Jesus Christ and make us like him together. In his name, amen.